In today's episode, we quote a hymn that's, well, almost 100 years old. We travel back then 100 years even before that for a birth in Bethel, Connecticut. We learn what the word humbug meant 200 years or so ago. We discover what you probably shouldn't call your new traveling business startup. And we ponder the political flip-flop, all on the way to answering the question, what trait must a saint have? Welcome to the Sky Pilot Podcast that explores questions of faith, spirituality, and religion. I'm Dan Matthews, and I don't have all the answers, but I do enjoy the questions. Welcome to the podcast where every question is an invitation into a spiritual quest, and you're invited along for the journey. Okay, the Catholic Church has an official process for being recognized as an official saint. You have to wait five years after your death. You have to be put forward by your local diocese. You have to have lived a life of heroic virtue. And do not ask me to define the term heroic virtue, because clearly that must not be the way I'm living. And you have to have participated in miracles that can be confirmed. But having said all of that, that's not the type of saint I'm talking about today. I'm really talking about the kind of saint that's mentioned in the hymn, I Sing a Song of the Saints of God. In verse 3 of that hymn, it says, They lived not only in ages past, they're hundreds of thousands still. And the world is bright with the joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will. You can meet them in school or in lanes or at sea, in church or in trains or in shops or at tea. For the saints of God are just folk like me, and I mean to be one too. Look, the church is not in the process of canonizing hundreds of thousands of saints, as the hymn just said. So this is a different kind of saint, obviously. This is the person who largely goes, well, unnoticed by the rest of the world, but who lives a remarkable life of faithfulness. Now, the question for the day asks, what makes these people special? And there could be a bunch of correct answers to that question. But today, I'm really interested in one particular trait that I think goes unheralded, unnoticed by the world and by the institutional church. So in our search for sainthood, let us begin someplace you might not expect. He was born in 1810 in Bethel, Connecticut. His first name was Phineas, but he was much more widely known of of course, by his initials and his last name, which was P.T. Barnum. He was the originator of P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome. And I think the name eventually got shortened because it couldn't fit on the t-shirts he sold after the show. I'm not sure of that, though. It's, that may just be my theory. Interestingly, he didn't even start his first circus until he was 60 years old. He was a very interesting guy. Before starting his circus, he owned a newspaper, a museum, served two terms in the Connecticut legislature, and also promoted an American tour of a Swedish opera singer who wound up paying more than anybody had ever paid an opera singer before. He paid them $1,000 a show back then as they traveled across the country. He's credited with having said, there is a sucker born every minute, but actually it's likely that somebody else created that phrase, 
and then credit that phrase to him, even though he never said it. And much of his business and many of his shows had an element of what he called humbug. Now, humbug is not like we think of in the novel where Scrooge says, bah humbug. Humbug was his word for what we might call kind of a hoax. He would, in his shows, often show some sort of physical oddity was what he initially was known for, like a person who was half animal, half human. And it was, of course, a hoax. And he felt that humbug, as he called it, these kind of hoaxes, was all in good fun. As long as you put on a good show, you entertain the people, and no one got cheated. Interestingly, he might play loose with the truth, but he was adamantly against fraud and actively pursued exposing it whenever he could. In the end, he was a showman, and he even said of himself, I am a showman by profession, and all the gilding shall make nothing else of me. So was this man, was P.T. Barnum a saint? Well, no, actually, he's not even who this episode is about, but he is where our story starts. P.T. Barnum had a good friend who, when that good friend got married and had a child, that good friend named his own newborn son after his friend P.T. Barnum. So his son's name was Barnum. And interestingly, this young Barnum was nothing like his namesake. Matter of fact, He wound up being a priest in the Episcopal Church down in Florida, and it was about 1991 that I was sitting at my desk in Chattanooga, and the phone rang. I answered, and the person on the other end introduced himself and said, Dan, this is Barnum McCarty in Jacksonville, Florida. I want to see if you'd be willing to come down to Jacksonville for a visit to see if you'd like to come work for me. It was, I'll say, one of the strangest search processes I've ever been through. In my denomination, when a church is in need of a priest, they often do a search. They look for a candidate. They interview the candidate or candidates. They bring them in for a visit, and then in the end, they invite one to come. They offer them the job, so to speak. They offer them a call. And the process is a lot like dating. When someone is single and unattached, but hoping to meet someone with whom they can date exclusively and be in relationship, well, they're likely to have dates with a number of different people in search of the right person. And there's nothing wrong with dating a lot of people. You just don't generally go about publicizing it, right? You don't normally go on a first date and say, you know, this is the third first date I've had this week. You don't hide it. You just don't publicize it. The search process is much the same way. Generally, when I would go to a church to be interviewed, I knew that they were also meeting with other people, but for the most part, it wasn't mentioned. There's this kind of illusion that for the moment, you're the only one. You know you aren't, but no one talks to you about the other candidates that they're seeing. So when I went to Jacksonville to meet with Barnum and be interviewed by a couple of different groups from within the church, I arrived at the airport and I was told just to wait for about 30 minutes. There were other flights arriving And evidently, the other candidate who was also being interviewed at that time was coming in. The Barnum I was about to meet, well, he had no interest in humbug whatsoever. He was not interested in any sort of subterfuge. He wasn't trying to hide the fact that another priest was there to be seen by them for the interview. The other priest and I rode in the same car together for the airport. And whenever we were interviewed, there was always another group doing the interviewing. So I would be in one group and there would be another group. So there were two groups doing interviewing. 
He was in one, I was in the other. And then after we'd be interviewed for, say, an hour, we would switch positions and we'd pass each other in the hallway as we traded groups. The strangest part came when they arranged for our rooms at the hotel. Our hotel rooms were next to each other. I mean, next to each other, as in they had a connecting door between them. And both nights, after our interviews, we sat together and pooled our thoughts and experiences. I remember in the moment feeling like we were somehow gaming the system. But in retrospect, it was probably exactly how Barnum intended it. Barnum died this past week, and so I've been spending a great deal of time thinking about him and my time working for him him as a mentor, and it's part of why you get to travel down this memory lane with me for a moment. I remember when I was offered the job by him. He took out a tablet and a sharpened pencil from the collection of sharpened pencils that he always had on his desk, and he drew a line on a piece of paper, and he put a little hash mark right in the middle. And on one side, he put an L, and on the other side, he put a C, and he told me that this represented the spectrum from liberal to conservative. He took his pencil, and he said, I want you to know where I am on the spectrum. Then he made a little mark, which was just a little right of the center. In other words, he was past the center and more on the conservative side. I remember thinking, oh boy, here we go. I thought at that moment I was in trouble because, well, because... I'm not in the same place that Barnum was on that spectrum that he had just drawn. I tend to be on the liberal end. But instead, all he did was said, I want you to know. You're allowed to be wherever you want on this spectrum. I just thought you might like to know where I am. And the conversation was over. He never asked me to declare where I was on that spectrum. But once again, all of that is kind of memory lane. The thing I remember most and admire most and comes to bear on our question for the day. The thing I remember about Barnum was a story he told me. Every three years, the Episcopal Church has a meeting of its national convention, and it has the rather generic name of General Convention. Our church is divided up into dioceses. Think of each diocese as kind of the equivalent of a state for our church, except there are many more of them than there are states. And each diocese sends its bishop to meet in what is called the House of Bishops, as well as a group of clergy and a group of lay representatives, and they all meet in what's known as the House of Deputies. In 1976, Barnum McCarty was representative from his diocese to the House of Deputies, and this was a big convention because it was voting on the issue of women's ordination. And the issue had come up before, but it never had enough support to pass, and this time it looked like it was a real possibility. Barnum went to the convention, prepared to vote on the issue, and he was not in favor of women's ordination. And when it came down to the final vote, he voted against it. The resolution passed, and the Episcopal Church agreed to finally start officially ordaining women. Now, I say officially because there were some dissenting bishops prior to this who went ahead and ordained women before this convention without permission— So there were already women priests, but it became official and kind of sanctioned by the Episcopal Church at the 1976 convention. Barnum came home from that convention, returned to being a priest in charge of the congregation where he served. And all of this would have been totally unnoteworthy if the story had ended there, but it doesn't. The board of an Episcopal church is called the Vestry, and it was some years later when Barnum called a meeting of the Vestry of his congregation for one single purpose. 
He wanted to tell them that he'd been wrong on his vote and that he believed it was time for this congregation to call their first woman priest to come on staff. As he told the story, I have always imagined that the moment he said, I want to call a woman priest, that the room erupted with dissent. He never actually said that that's what happened. It's just kind of the way I imagine the story. What he did say is that he was met with mostly dissent. So they began to talk, and they talked, and they talked, and they talked. He always said that he locked the doors with the intent of keeping everyone there until they came to a decision unanimously. Now, of course, the room wasn't designed so that he could actually lock everyone in, but he always used that phrase when he told the story. I told them I was locking the doors until we come to a decision. And according to Barna, several hours later, an exhausted but unanimous vestry emerged with a decision to call the first woman priest to come and serve at their church. In Politics, there is nothing worse than being accused of a flip-flop, the absolute and ultimate sign of weakness and silliness in these days in politics is to change one's mind, which has always seemed ridiculous to me. So we want to elect people who have made up their minds before getting into office, and regardless of what they learn or how they might grow, they will never change their minds for the rest of their political career? That never made sense to me. This entire podcast series is built upon asking questions, but it's more important than that because questions are pointless if we are unwilling to be moved or changed or grow in any way by the answers that we discover. The ultimate follower of any faith is someone who remains open to God at work in their world, their life, their mind, and who's willing to change. The lesson that Barnum taught me is that none of us can hope to always get it right. The good news, though, is that even when we're wrong, we are never so committed to any decision that we can't learn and then change our minds. What is the trait that makes a saint? Well, in my opinion, it is the willingness to grow, learn, and then ultimately the willingness to change direction and even admit we were wrong. If you are capable of this remarkable holy trait, then you are capable of being a very holy saint following God. That's all for today. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get notified of future episodes. Also, you can always find me on Facebook and YouTube. Just search for SkyPilot FaithQuest. And if you'd like, you can get in touch with me by email. Just know that my email address is dan at skypilot.zone. And on your spiritual journey, may you ask questions, seek answers, and boldly go wherever the quest takes you. Thanks for listening to SkyPilot FaithQuest. I invite you to send me a question or leave a review. And remember, the sign of a strong faith, solid religion, or healthy spiritual journey is not certainty, but that you keep asking questions.